This podcast is part of the Robots Radio Rocket Club, a program designed to help all podcasts reach their full potential. For information about joining the Robots Radio Rocket Club, check out robotsradio.net. Hello, and welcome to the MCU Lorecast. I'm Psych88. As promised, this is my solo episode on comic book history, which I have been much looking forward to. If you've heard even one episode of this podcast, you know that I bring comic book lore and real-world history to the table during our discussions. And as a former theater professor once said to me, I'm a damn good dramaturge. So I figured I'd compile this very broad look at this much misunderstood corner of pop culture for your enjoyment. And mine, a little bit. Now, it is one of the fundamental aspects of humanity to tell stories, and we've used visual mediums to communicate going all the way back to the Stone Age with cave paintings. So when do those elements converge to become comics? First, let's define our word comic. The word has roots in the Greek words komos and komikos before being adapted in the mid-16th century into the Latin comic. Now, for our purposes, we'll be setting aside the comedic parts of the word, even though that would become the start of comics as we know it today. We could define a comic as a story that is told in a sequential narrative. One of the first instances this can be seen in is the Bayou Tapestry, that would be spelled B-A-Y-E-U-X, or embroidery, that depicts the Norman conquest of England up through the Battle of Hastings. Some first printed examples arrive in the late Middle Ages as the Pauper's Bible, which take the stories of the Bible and illustrate them for the masses. Some characters are even depicted as having scrolls coming out of their mouths with words on them, which is obviously a precursor to the speech bubble. Others start popping up between the 18th and 19th centuries in England and Germany, mainly to be used for satirical and humorous purposes. William Hogarth's A Rake's Progress is a very classic example of using sequential narrative and single panels to tell a story, and is widely considered an archaic form of the storyboard. But none of this is quite what we're looking for, is it? Where's the interaction between characters? Where's the drama? Or to paraphrase Genesis, where's the sex appeal? Well, hang on, we're just getting into the good stuff. It wouldn't be until the late 19th century that we begin to see comic strips in newspapers. Though the Yellow Kid is credited with being the first comic strip, the art form had been heading that way for some time with single-paneled political cartoons and the like. So it is hard to definitively say, yeah, that one is the first one, as there are many examples leading up to it. For the U.S., the newspaper war between Joseph Pulitzer and William Randolph Hearst is a significant contributing factor to the popularity of comic strips, and also where we get yellow journalism. But that's for another history lesson that I'm sure in 7 is just dying to give. The Little Bears, which ran from 1893 to 1896, was the first American strip to use reoccurring characters, 
with the use of full color being implemented in mid-1892. Other noteworthy comic strips include Ripley's Believe It or Not, Popeye, Blondie, and Dick Tracy, all of which had their starts in the very early 20th century and are still running. The title for the longest-running American newspaper comic strip belongs to the Cats in Jammer Kids, which ran from 1897 to 2006. That would be a 109-year runtime. This brings me to the good stuff. Historically speaking, the first book is Rodolph Topfer's The Adventures of Mr. Obadiah Oldbuck. The U.S. publication of the book was in 1842, but without the rampant success of newspaper comic strips, comics may have gone nowhere. Comic books that were first published independently of a newspaper did not show up until 1934, but the golden age of comics would not happen for another four years with the arrival of Action Comics number one, Superman. Wait, what's the golden age? Does that mean there are other ages? And why am I talking about non-Marvel material? I'll explain. As I was saying, there is the golden age of comics. You've probably heard me mention it once or twice during our episodes covering the Captain America movies. But what are the others? Some sources include the era of the comic strip, and considering their heavy involvement in the foundation of comics as we know them, I do too. That gives us six eras of comics to cover, two of which we've already done. The Victorian Age starts in 1842 and goes to 1897, and the Platinum Age goes from that to 1938, which would be the eras predominated by the newspapers and very early sequential narration stories. After that was the Golden, then Silver, then Bronze, then finally the Modern Age. Depending on your source, some of these ages get broken up further. This is typically based on the popular narratives at the time, such as breaking the Golden Age in half to be that and the Atomic Age. I'll let you guess why they may have called it that. As for the other thing, just because I'm a bigger fan of Marvel works than I am of DC does not mean I'll just ignore historical fact. Action Comics number one changed the game, a fact that no one can deny. I don't stand for revisionist history, so we'll be talking about DC on this Marvel podcast. And for our purists out there, the publisher for AC number one was Detective Comics, the predecessor to DC. During the late 30s and early 40s, comics had a good thing going for them. We had many now household names appear at this time. Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Captain America, Captain Marvel, the Shazam version, the Human Torch, and Namor, to name a few. Their popularity was bolstered immensely by the war, of course. If you had a patriotic scheme and had covers fighting the Axis powers, your comics sold. Both Detective and Timely, the predecessor to Marvel, did very well here, though the best-selling superhero was Fawcett Comics' Captain Marvel, which sold bi-weekly. That was frankly unheard of in the industry, especially considering how young this industry was at the time. After the war, hero stories waned, which made the publishers shift gears into other genres. This is the era of westerns, and horrors, and non-hero titles like Archie. Some heroes got shunted into those genres, sometimes gracefully, sometimes not, while others were just outright cancelled. It was the Wild West era of the industry, but I would say it was all in good fun. So, what happened? 
Why aren't my shelves loaded with great detective graphic novels or epic westerns? Why do we have 60 plus years of Batman and Captain America that include titles such as Tales of Suspense and the like? The answer is Dr. Frederick Wortham Happen. The Good Doctor was a German-American psychiatrist who was born March 20th, 1895. Now, before I start bashing this guy, I should note that his work within the African-American community in Harlem was highly progressive for its time, and his institutional stressor findings were used by courts to overturn several segregation rulings, the most notable of which belongs to the Supreme Court case Brown v. Board of Education. Though I should also note that it was mainly his work, not himself personally, that was involved with that case. So let's pull back for a moment and look at the broader American picture at the time. It was the early 50s, where American pastimes were playing baseball and eating homemade apple pie. It also included spying on your neighbors to make sure they weren't dirty commie spies, just as much as they were spying on you, and listening to U.S. congressional hearings on just about everything that ensured that the American way of life was the only way of life. One of those congressional hearings was testimony of Dr. Wortham before the Senate Subcommittee on Juvenile Delinquency, which was led by Tennessee Senator Estes Kefauver. If you get the chance, read up on the good senator. He was a good man and a hard time, politically speaking. Back in 1954, Wortham had published the now infamous book, Seduction of the Innocent, where he detailed how the violent images within comics were harming the developing minds of the youth. The doctor went to great lengths to establish how these perverse images were greatly contributing to the erosion of good American values, and so the subcommittee came back with the veiled threat of censorship by requesting the comic book industry regulate itself. The industry, with a gun to its head basically, agreed to the terms and created the equally infamous Comics Code Authority. Now, before we leave Dr. Wortham here in the past, we need to talk about his claims and his methodology. He cherry-picked some violent imagery associated with attacks to the eye, he claimed Batman and Robin represented a gay lifestyle, and that Wonder Woman's strength and independence made her a lesbian. He did manage to find the bondage subtext within her comics, but even a broken clock is right twice a day. The man staked everything on the logical fallacy that correlation implies causation when he claimed that because 95% of children in reform school read comic books meant that comics were the reason for their delinquency. The coup d'etat for this piece of work would not come until 2010, when Wortham's manuscripts were unsealed from the Library of Congress and got into the hands of one Carol Tilly, a University of Illinois librarian and information science professor. In her 2012 study, she held nothing back when she rebuffed Wortham's works. Quoting Tilly here, Wortham manipulated, overstated, compromised, and fabricated evidence especially that evidence he attributed to personal clinical research with young people for rhetorical gain, end quote. Basically, Wortham's sample size was mainly youths already diagnosed with behavioral problems, he passed off stories from colleagues as his own, and he deliberately changed statements from his patients to fit his thesis. What a great guy. Stanley is quoted as saying, Wortham said things that impressed the public, and it was like shouting fire in a theater, but there was very little scientific validity to it. And yet, because he had the name Doctor, people took what he said seriously, 
and it started a whole crusade against comics. You can see why this is damaging now, both culturally and scientifically. We have parent support groups that say this movie or that video game are the reasons why we have mass shootings, but we can't get people to take a vaccine because nobody wants to believe the quote, quacks in lab coats. As much as I would like to blame Dr. Wortham for everything that is wrong with the Karens of the world, I'm not so full of myself to make such a claim. There are similarities, and one could even say roots here, but that is as far as it can go. But I should not be too hard on the man. Without his efforts, the industry might not have turned back to telling stories about superheroes. With the newly minted CCA in effect, comic books went back to the old standard. Of the Golden Age characters, only Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman made it out with uninterrupted publications, even if the original writers and artists were no longer on them in some cases. Aquaman and Green Arrow also make the list as characters to make it from one age to another, though they were backup characters in adventure comics. Yes, I did mention that Timely slash Marvel had a Captain America character going, but he was not in his own book, nor is believed anymore he was the same character. So kudos to DC for keeping the flame going. DC is also credited with coming up with some new heroes, heroes who would become even more well-loved and received than some Golden Age characters. We officially kick off the Silver Age with the introduction of The Flash in Showcase Number 4 in October 1956. Shortly after that, in 1960, stands were filled with The Brave and the Bold Number 28, which featured the Justice League of America's debut. This new team-oriented comic changed the game yet again, which Atlas slash Marvel responded with the Fantastic Four, November 1961, the X-Men, September 1963, and the Avengers, also September 1963. Within a decade of the implementation of the CCA, we have the roster of heroes that will continue into the present. One should not forget the smaller publishers caught up in all of this at the time. Harvey Comics, which had been primarily in the horror genre, had to radically alter everything about their image and branding. They were the ones that came up with such timeless characters like Richie Rich, Casper the Friendly Ghost, and Little Dot, just to name a few. So we got all these heroes and lovable characters, so just what was the CCA really doing? Founded by the Comics Magazine Association of America, the CMAA for short, with Charles F. Murray at the helm, they developed the CCA utilizing an unenforced code that had been based on the Hayes Code. For context, the Hayes Code was the original standard by which Hollywood made their movies before the creation of the Motion Picture Association of America's rating system as we know today. Now, I wanted to sum up quickly what the CCA covered, but I felt that in excluding any one part of it, you would not get the full picture of absurdity this code covers. If you want to skip ahead about two minutes, you can look up the code at any time. Here is what the CCA covered at its creation. Crimes shall never be presented in such a way as to create sympathy for the criminal to promote distrust of the forces of law and justice, or to inspire others with a desire to imitate criminals. If crime is depicted, it shall be as a sordid and unpleasant activity. 
Policemen, judges, government officials, and respected institutions shall never be presented in such a way as to create disrespect for established authority. Criminals shall not be presented so as to be rendered glamorous or to occupy a position which creates a desire for emulation. In every instance, good shall triumph over evil and the criminal punished for his misdeeds. Scenes of excessive violence shall be prohibited. Scenes of brutal torture, excessive and unnecessary knife and gunplay, physical agony, the gory and gruesome crime shall be eliminated. No comic cover shall use the words horror or terror in its title. All scenes of horror, excessive bloodshed, gory or gruesome crimes, depravity, lust, sadism, masochism shall not be permitted. All lurid, unsavory, gruesome illustrations shall be eliminated. Inclusion of stories dealing with evil shall be used or shall be published only where the intent is to illustrate a moral issue and in no case shall evil be presented alluringly, nor so as to injure the sensibilities of the reader. Scenes dealing with, or instruments associated with, walking dead, torture, vampires, vampirism, ghouls, cannibalism, and werewolfism are prohibited. Profanity, obscenity, smut, vulgarity, or words or symbols which have acquired undesirable meanings are forbidden. Nudity in any form is prohibited, as is indecent or undue exposure. Suggestive and salacious illustration or suggestive posture is unacceptable. Females shall be drawn realistically without exaggeration of any physical qualities. Illicit sex relations are neither to be hinted at nor portrayed. Rape scenes, as well as sexual abnormalities, are unacceptable. Seduction and rape shall never be shown or suggested. Sex perversion or any inference to same is strictly forbidden. Nudity with meretitious purpose and salacious postures shall not be permitted in the advertising of any product. Clothed figures shall never be presented in such a way as to be offensive or contrary to good taste or morals. All elements or techniques not specifically mentioned wherein, but which are contrary to the spirit and intent of the code and are considered violations of good taste and decency. So, you can see the kind of pickle the comic book industry found itself in. Several of these restrictions led to more than a few creative characters to get around the CCA. Looking at you, Sauron. And, of course, anything that represented the empowerment of women or the LGBTQ community was an attack on the moral fiber of America. But that was the 50s and 60s. All camp and fun times to disguise the hideous proxy war America had picked with the Russians in Korea and Vietnam. So... How did the industry get out of it? It took some time, and more than a couple rewrites or alterations to the code. There was not any one issue that we can look at to say, this is where the Bronze Age began. It was a small war of attrition and inevitability. 
Something that big and stifling just could not remain in place forever, especially as society changed around it. One of the first big cracks was in 1971. Stanley, editor-in-chief at the time at Marvel, was approached by the U.S. Department of Health, Education, and Welfare to do a story on the dangers of drugs and drug abuse. Lee ran with it, creating the hallmark three-part story of The Green Goblin Reborn. However, when he submitted the comic for approval, it was denied based on the last clause. So, Lee, believing he had already had the government's blessing because they were the ones who wanted the story, went around the CCA and published it. The story was well-received, and it caused a rewrite to the code. So long as drug abuse was depicted negatively, the industry could tell stories with drugs in them. This change to the code allowed DC to make their own story, where they hooked Speedy up to heroin about a year later. The next big event was in 1973, yet again in Spider-Man comics. That's right, I'm talking about the night when Stacy died. These two issues, issues 121 and 122, are considered peak Bronze Age these days. It really challenged the status quo of untouchable characters, and went even darker in tone by killing a mainstream character on screen. Now, coming out of the 60s, comics were getting darker in tone overall before those incidents. They were also getting darker in skin tone. Characters like Black Panther and Falcon were already introduced, 1966 and 1969 respectively, but the 70s brought us Luke Cage, Storm, and Blade from Marvel, and Jon Stewart, Black Lightning, and Cyborg from DC. This is just to name a few, and not all of were of African descent. Kenny Pride and Moon Knight are Jewish, plus we have Shang-Chi. Now, unfortunately, several of these stories and characters were also steeped in the Kung Fu mania that was sweeping the nation at the time, so they haven't aged well. But thankfully, several of the characters were able to outgrow that trope in due time, like Luke Cage. This darker trend would continue to 1895, which is the year most comic book historians dub as the start of the modern age, though some hold out until 2000. That 15-year gap is filled with the copper and chrome ages. There is also one creator, Tom Pinchuk, that considers the year 2000 to be the start of the Diamond Age, with the publication of Marvel's Ultimate line of comics, which I personally end at Ultimatum. This modern age is the age of anti-heroes, ready origins, and poor physical proportions. Oh, and pouches. So many pouches. For me, there is a reason this age is also called the Dark Ages, and not just because of poor costume choices. Batman, The Dark Knight Returns, and Watchmen completely redefined the heroic aspects of comic book characters, bringing us the idea that it takes a very troubled individual to go out and be a costumed hero. Plus, the artistic influence of these books was felt across the spectrum. Characters like Wolverine, the Punisher, and Elektra thrived in this time as well. And in a way, it mirrored what was happening in the real world. During the late 80s and early 90s, the big houses were going into decline, and the little independents were on the rise. Image, Dark Horse, and Milestone were all starting to hit the big leagues, 
and taking the larger houses to court in some cases. Meanwhile, Marvel and DC were busy making limited or foil editions of their comics. Books started underperforming. This led to a crash for Marvel and DC and put many retail stores out of business. This culminated with Marvel's declaration of bankruptcy in 1966, which they staved off by selling the movie rights of nearly all of their characters. Because DC had been a part of the Warner Brothers conglomerate since 1972 in one capacity or another, they did not have to declare bankruptcy. They were, however, just as hurt by the crash, and more so by the backlash of the Batman movies that came out during that time as well. This seemed like the end for comics. They were either campy and childlike, or too dark and self-absorbed to be enjoyable. So, how did they stick around? Whether it was luck or inspiration, the selling off of the movie rights allowed Marvel to limp along until the turn of the millennium. By 2000, Fox had put out the first Blade movie, which made $131.2 million in 1998, and the first X-Men movie, which made $296.3 million worldwide. On the small screen, you had the popularity of Fox's animated Spider-Man and X-Men, plus the WB's animated Batman and Superman, keeping the spirit alive. The publishers were able to latch onto that and bring a new generation into the fold, both in the consumer and working for them in-house. Writer and artist quality was improved with the hirings of writers from Hollywood, like J. Michael Straczynski and Richard Donner, while conversely, writers like Neil Gaiman and Frank Miller were reaching broader audiences via novels and movies. Which brings us up to the present. Things are good for the comic book industry, and though they're being artificially inflated by moviegoers, their numbers have never looked better. There are some fantastic storylines going on right now, so you should check up on your favorite superhero or team and see what's out there. If you've been left wanting more, great! I did say at the beginning that this would be a broad look at comic book history, and there's only so much I felt I could reasonably fit in here without getting too much into the weeds. If you want to learn more, you should read A Complete History of Comic Books by Cheryl Rhodes and Matthew J. Theroult's We're Living in the Postmodern Age of Comics. And if you're really feeling plucky, go read The Seduction of the Innocent, especially if you're in need of a good laugh. As I'm sure you noticed... I've gone the entire episode without going to a mid-break. The fact of the matter is that I've rewritten this script about six times trying to incorporate it without breaking the narrative flow, and every one of them sounded hokey and just plain bad, so I thought it best to put it all at the end here. As always, you can reach out to myself or Shanko via our Twitter or through the Robots Radio Discord. If you haven't joined that server... I have finally figured out how to make the invite function work, so check out the description below for the link. We have greatly enjoyed our conversations with everyone on the server and are really looking forward to more over the next year. You can also hit up our email or Facebook pages if that suits you better. Of course, we're always seeking those five-star reviews. We would be absolutely thrilled to hit 10 reviews from Apple before the end of the year, and would give us a small backlog to read out at the start of the year. So, if you have Apple and like what you're hearing, toss us that review. It really helps the show grow. 
I would be a terrible partner if I didn't plug Shenko's other show, The Fight Space. She has such a passion for the martial arts, which you can totally hear in her solo episode. And her show is one of the few that is a primarily female-led fight podcast. So go support and listen to her talk about fighting. You can also find me on the Mass Effect Blue Shift podcast. It is a tabletop RPG show that utilizes the Fate gaming system. I play dashing human agent Jack Parizo, and my squad and I solve crimes upon the Citadel. We've got a great couple episodes headed your way, so keep an eye out for them. And finally, I wish to convey a very heartfelt thank you to those of you that stuck with us this long, and to those of you that have joined our Patreon. In the spirit of the holidays, I'm just going to call out everyone, which includes the Wagners, Stephen Patrick, and Genesis. Thank you all so much for helping this little podcast get out there into the world. We wouldn't be here without you. So in conclusion, happy holidays, everyone, and we'll catch up with you next year. As we all know, when it comes to making a movie, there are a lot of people working behind the scenes to make that movie magic happen. And it is no different when making a podcast. Welcome to the credit section of the MCU Lorecast. Captain Shanko and I would like to personally thank the following for their incredibly hard work and faith in us to get this podcast rolling. Tom, the head of the Robots Radio Network, for hosting and mentoring. In 7 Legend of the Mass Effect Lorecast for inspiration. Genesis and Vervada of the Two Girls One Ship podcast for introducing us. Let's Not, a fellow tabletop gamer and friend, for the amazing artwork. Pipe Men, a veteran and friend, for the outstanding music. Our significant others for believing in and supporting us through this. And you, our fans, without whom this would be a vanity project. Let us know how we're doing by leaving us a review on Apple or a rating on Spotify. And, to quote Stan the Man... Enough said. Hi, welcome to Three Count Thoughts. Let me introduce the crew real quick. Hi, I'm Maverick Stone. I'm Romer. And I'm Jaxus. Join us as we talk all things wrestling. Each week, we'll take a topic from the wrestling world, knock it around a bit, and then go over the week in wrestling from a strictly fan perspective. We can be found on all major podcast catchers. We can also be found at 3 Count Thoughts on both YouTube and Twitter. Or you can send us an email using 3 thoughts at gmail.com. Okay, are you ready? Ring the bell. <laughs>